Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Dennis, and I too would like to welcome everyone to our program today, What's New in Precision Medicine? Um, and this today's program is supported by AstraZeneca, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. And I also want to let you all know that there are a lot of you on the call today. We have over 250 participants on the call. We come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we have a number of international participants from Canada, Cape Verde, Colombia, Ireland, Nigeria, South Africa, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris, and Dr. Chris is William and Joy Ruane, Chair in Thoracic Oncology, Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Royal Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris will be addressing Understanding Precision Medicine, Overview and Value of Precision Medicine, the Role of Precision Medicine in Deciding the Treatment for Lung Cancer, How Precision Medicine Contributes to Treatment Options, and quality of life. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Thank you, Carolyn. And uh, thank you everyone for uh, joining us today. We, uh, as a group of uh, speakers today, we're talking about the definitions of, of precision medicine and uh, we uh, all have a, a slightly different uh, spin on exactly what it means. And I think though we're not, um, precise in precision medicine, and, and it might be a little bit hard to understand. There's another term called personalized medicine uh, that's often used interchangeably. And I'll give my definition. You'll hear others from the other speakers. But I think it boils down to this, and that is it is using all the information and resources we have available to choose the best plan of care for your illness. Uh, it, uh, I think, has been summarized in a lot of uh, advertising for this, and you know, it's all about treating your cancer, and as precisely uh, and accurately as we can define your cancer, we can choose the best treatment. Um, it's the the term targeted therapy is one kind of treatment. Uh, but it doesn't really refer to this whole concept of learning all we can about you and the, the, the cancer you're fighting and then coming up with the best treatment. Uh, I'm a lung cancer expert. I'm going to focus on lung cancer today and a couple of general concepts uh, uh, along these lines. I think the first is it's absolutely critical uh, to diagnose cancer, and the only way to do that is to have actual cancer cells examined by a pathologist or a, a cytologist. Only they can determine if cancer is present, and it's always the first step. 
There is, I think, a misconception that there's a blood test that will say whether or not you have cancer or that there's an imaging study that says whether or not you have cancer or there's a so-called liquid biopsy uh, that can say whether or not you have cancer. And while it can give important information about your cancer, it cannot diagnose your cancer. And there is an absolute need for tissue. I know um, it's very uh, troublesome for uh, people facing a cancer diagnosis to have to wait until these biopsies can be done and analyzed, but it is absolutely essential. So once cancer is diagnosed, it's very, very important to figure out where uh, it originated from, uh, and there's a lot of ways that that's done, and that's something that your doctor would do. It's a synthesis of the uh, tissue samples and the various testing that's done. And the next step in, in choosing cancer therapy and uh, best uh, therapy for, for your cancer is to do what they call staging, figuring out exactly where the cancer is in the body. And we do that by imaging studies. And sometimes we also do it by biopsying various tissues of the body. Um, for example, a lymph node may be biopsied to see if there has been spread to the lymph nodes that may have not been apparent on an imaging study. We now then turn to the pathologist to guide our selection of treatment. So when we've decided that you need a drug treatment of some kind, the next step would be what kind of cancer are we facing? And for lung cancer, there's really three types. Adenocarcinoma, about 60% of the cases. Uh, squamous cell carcinoma, about 20%. And small cell lung cancer, uh, about 13 or 15%. It's absolutely critical to make those uh, diagnoses because it immediately points to what types of therapies and what specific drugs are best to fight your cancer. And there's a lot of research now that's saying that one drug may be better than another for a specific type of it. So it's critically important for that. I also say again, the only way this diagnosis can be made as to the type of lung cancer is with tissue. And the pathologist or cytologist that analyzes the tissue has to have sufficient tissue to do this and to do it with uh, precision. And if they say the tissue is not adequate, you need to have another biopsy or another procedure of some kind. I know that's very, very frustrating. That's the last thing on earth you want to think that you need more, more testing, but, but, but you do. Once we have the type of cancer, I think the next step is to do uh, some uh, DNA-based testing. Uh, it's got a lot of different names, mutation testing, genomic testing, next-generation sequencing. But basically what it means is extracting the DNA from the cancer, not your DNA, but the, cancer, the cancer's DNA, the DNA in the cancer cells, and analyzing it, looking for certain types of DNA presence or DNA damage. And what that does is twofold. Number one, if you have a certain kind of DNA detected that shows that a cancer cell has a certain genetic change in it, it very often means that this cancer will respond to a so-called targeted therapy. So if you have a mutation in the EDFR gene, drugs that target that mutation will work. Conversely, drugs that 
uh, patients whose tumors do not have that EGFR damaged gene, they will not benefit from these therapies. So you get two pieces of information. If you have the mutation in, in your tumor, it says what therapy might help. It also tells you what therapies won't help, and that can be very, very critical. The other thing that has happened now for the use of immune treatments is that uh, you need to know that these uh, damaged genes that would lead to a target therapy are not present. So even if you're moving toward an immune therapy, you need to know that this EGFR damage, the ALK damage, the ROS damage is not there. Uh, so it's absolutely critical to do this. This again requires tissue. Sometimes the DNA can be found in blood. Uh, and that's a backup way of doing this, but you need this. The other difficult point with this is that, again, it takes time. The blood tests take from three days to two weeks. The tissue tests can take from three days to four weeks. So this information is super critical to the doc to select the best therapy, but it does imply delay. And it's a real tough, tough situation uh, to, to wait for the, the person, also for the doc. And, and there needs to be some you know, back and forth uh, about what delay is reasonable and how to cope with that delay. Why is this so important? Well, by choosing the best therapy, First off, it gives you more options. If you have a, um, a tumor with a mutated gene, you have those targeted therapies against that gene, plus the therapies that work against various types of lung cancers. So it gives you more options. The second thing is that as a group, these targeted therapies are, are more effective. The, the cancer is more likely to shrink with a targeted than a non-target therapy. And lastly, the more targeted therapy, generally the fewer generalized side effects. So a drug that targets the CGFR gene won't cause a loss of hair or nerves damage or damage the blood. So precision medicine is something, frankly, we've always tried to do. We now have more tools to allow us to do this better uh, and to help us uh, forgive the redundancy, but more precisely select the tumor uh, uh, characteristics that can lead to the best therapy. Uh, and uh, the, the, to do it, though, we need tissue uh, and we need time. So uh, be prepared to have those discussions with your healthcare team uh, and do your best to understand why this testing needs to be done and how long it's going to take. But the results uh, are the best when you put in the time and, and have the tissue to do these testing. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was an outstanding presentation, actually setting the stage for the entire program today. So thank you so much. Thank you. And our, our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader of Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor Wall Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Moore will be addressing precision medicine's role in informing treatment decisions, the role of precision medicine in deciding the treatment for leukemia, and how precision medicine is different from targeted treatment. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Uh, thank you, Carolyn, and uh, thank you, Mark, for uh, kicking us off with that great opening, um, and you all for joining. So. Um, so if Dr. Chris is a lung cancer guy, I'm a leukemia guy, particularly uh, chronic, chronic myeloid leukemia and myeloproliferative diseases. Um, and let's talk a little bit more about precision medicine. Um, it, the first um, point would be, how does it inform our, our treatment decisions? Um, 
I wanted to start actually with a story because I think um, we're talking a lot about precision medicine and targeted therapy. And I think this will kind of set the stage in leukemia. Um, it's always great that cancer care has pathologists as part of the, um, the uh, panels when we have these topics. And particularly in leukemia, the role of the pathologist and the clinician uh, or the, the, the um, hematologist working together is so important. Um, we rely on our colleagues to make informative discoveries when we give them samples, whether it's a blood sample, a tumor sample, that really shape precision medicine. We, we can add to that by understanding who is the patient, what kind of treatments um, would be met, maybe best for them broadly, what about their specific other health issues, how might they metabolize drugs. But really, it, it's often down to, you know, um, mostly what, what characteristics does the tumor have or doesn't have, as Dr. Chris just gave a great example. Um, and then, of course, we zoom in on is there something we can target, you know, literally like you're shooting an arrow at a bullseye. Can we really just treat a cancer as narrowly and as closely as we can? And the history of targeted treatment um, is not that um, new. It does go back. Um, we're going to hear from breast oncologists and, and later on the call, which is fantastic. Because they really were one of the leaders of developing targeted therapy with the simple notion of hormone therapy or anti-hormone therapy. And then subsequent to that, antibody therapy, which is a targeted drug, the drug Perceptin. Um, back in around World War II, there was a pathologist, Sidney Farber, at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Um, you can see the link there. He was actually chief of pathology. And working off a discovery, literally, which was new, that folic acid had something to do with blood health, um, a few experiments were done. The first was, unfortunately, not so good, which was giving what had recently been discovered as a folic acid compound to advanced cancer patients, including leukemia patients, made the cancers a bit worse. But that immediately led to the suspicion that if you took away folic acid, you could make the cancer shrink or perhaps collectively treat the cancer. And there's a very famous story of Sidney Farber treating children in Boston with a very, I would say, targeted drug called aminopsin, which is an antifolate. And there is a, a pretty miraculous outcome um, of a majority of patients going into a very dramatic remission with this simple antifolate. So that, that is a targeted therapy. It's a broader targeted therapy because it's really just saying leukemia cells in these children were very dependent on folic acid and they had no other way to get it. And if you blocked their folic acid um, pathway, you, you could kill them and uh, the, can the cancer cells did it. And the children's um, blood recovered and they did well. It wasn't a lasting remission, but it really was the start of things. Um, let me, let me talk a little bit about leukemia in general now. So, you know, building on the last 80 years or, or 60 plus years since then, we've seen a host of different stories develop. I, I had the uh, pleasure of being involved in the story of chronic myeloleukemia, where the story there is in the 1970s, we figured out that this blood cancer had a specific signature. And I think this is common to most cancers. As Dr. Chris was talking about different genes and different signatures that lung cancer cells have. Chronic leukemia cells had a very distinct genetic abnormality, and what, what the discovery was is that that probably was the biggest and, the, and really the sole thing that drove that cancer. And that drove my mentor, Brian Drucker, and, and, and he was building on work of many scientists, including pathologists, cytogeneticists, to say, if we could just simply get a family of drugs that would target the genetic, the, 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 the change that developed because of this genetic signature, which we thought was kind of like the switch that had been thrown on in the cancer cell, if you could do that in a narrow fashion, you could come up with a good cancer therapy. Believe me, no one thought that that was going to be a, a lasting, effective therapy, and it was a fair bit of skepticism. But in fact, it worked. And a whole family of drugs in chronic myeloid leukemia developed. There are now six FDA-approved 
inhibitors called BCR-ABL inhibitors or TKIs, <clears throat> which are highly effective. And we now talk about functional cure in CML, where we had no options for cure outside of bone marrow transplant prior to the development of this line of therapy. That was miraculous. That really opened the door to um, what was already happening, which is the search for other targets and other cancers. In leukemia, we really look at cancer differently. Um, and, you know, there are some leukemias like CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, where there are broad categories of therapy, much like Sidney Farber's aminopterin, antifolate. There are antibody drugs which block something called CD20. Um, and the, but, but, you know, they've, they've evolved. The first one was rituximab, but now there's um, a family of antibody drugs. There, there were simple medicines in CLL that were used previously, but now, indeed, we have targeted therapies or precision therapies, if you will, based on the characteristics of people's CLL. Um, we have BTK inhibitors, or Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We have, um, other, we, we have other drugs that block a, a certain cancer protein called BCL2, with the most um, uh, useful being a drug called venetoclax. Um, so we have broad precision medicine that treats the cancer as it maybe moves and shifts a bit or as it maybe takes on different properties. Each patient um, it has what I would say is personalized um, investigation. Do they have a mutation, for example, in the BTK enzyme? And that might um, mean that a BTK inhibitor might not work or a different BTK inhibitor might need to, to be used. Um, so so it, all these um, strategies are interchangeable. Um, I've talked to you a little bit about CML. In acute myeloid leukemia, we've come a long way. We used to just think of describing a cancer based on its characteristics. What type of cell was the leukemia, the, the leukemia elements, what kind of cell was it putting out? How did it look under the microscope? What characteristics did it have? Did it have? Certain types of acute leukemia were very treatable with certain selected drugs. Um, most weren't. But now we almost, as Dr. Chris had described in lung cancer, now we must really strive to sequence and profile a, a patient with acute leukemia before we start treatment, because we, we may miss the boat if we have certain characteristics, certain tumor suppressor genes like P53 that have been damaged, or if we have one or two um, now very well-established targets. One is called IDH, or the isocitrate dehydrogenase. That's the basic enzyme in most cells related to the energy cycle that can be mutated and is targetable in acute leukemia. Or if they have a, a, an, an abnormality and a and a kinase called FLT3. We have a family of targeted drugs there. Um, we still use chemotherapy, but um, we, we, we now um, can see cross-pollination, I might say. The drug I mentioned in CLL called venetoclax has become now a mainstay of treatment in acute myeloid leukemia because this is maybe less precise, um, but in, in a way it's actually more precise. We've, we now see that both chronic lymphocytic leukemia and acute myeloid leukemia the same drug can have a dramatic effect because both the cancers rely on the same key um, um, uh, target um, or uh, uh, gene, um, not, not gene in this case, BCL2 is a protein, but it's, it, it's altered in these, in these cancer cells. So the, um, there, is con there is challenge to be <laughs> precise, uh, no pun intended, about these decisions. But in my, in my last moment to say, how does precision medicine different from targeted treatment? I would say so precision medicine is taking the approach where we want to know as much as we can about the patient and the cancer to make the right decision about treatment right from the start. And that may include many features, not just what arrow do we need to pull out of the quiver to hit the bullseye. And that's what targeted treatment is. Certain cancers may not have one target, but they might have characteristics where a certain class of therapies is going to be quite effective. So they are interchangeable, 
And I think the bottom line is that um, the role of pathologists and clinicians working together is, is absolutely crucial. And the role of patients and their, and their families and, and their loved ones to be advocates for seeking um, good counsel about cancer treatment, um, understanding, as Dr. Chris mentioned, sometimes we need to, to wait a bit to get proper pathology and proper information, because we really can make much smarter decisions as we treat all cancers. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. That was really outstanding and just a stellar presentation, as always. And, um, and again, um, helping everyone understand the concept of precision medicine and, and how it applies to um, leukemia. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Supreet Kaur. And Dr. Kaur is Assistant Professor, Department of Hematology and Oncology, UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Kaur will be addressing guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology and prepared list of questions, and the role of precision medicine in deciding the treatment for lymphoma. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kaur. Hi, thank you for the opportunity. So, you know, as we've discussed, uh, that precision medicine, we all have our own versions or definitions of it. So, for me, it's to refine treatment according to precise molecular tumor type of the patient. So, essentially, what we're trying to do is we're trying to identify targets or molecular markers which are specific to tumor type and then add these targeted agents for improved survival, improving quality of life and hopefully lowering the adverse events in patients. So when it comes to lymphoma, there are two basic subtypes that we talk about, non-Hodgkin's and Hodgkin's lymphoma. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is further divided into B-cell and the T-cell subtypes. So in the B-cell subtype, we saw one of the, one of the molecules which brought changes and has become standard of care for the past 20 years is rituximab. It's an anti-CD20 molecule that when we saw we added to the chemotherapy arm CHOP uh, and we got our CHOP has now become the standard of care for the past 20 years among most subtypes of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is a common, the most common non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It has shown to improve survival. So we, this is the first-line treatment now. In DLBCL subtypes and other B-cell lymphomas, we have more and more uh, agents there are newer agents that are coming in for example anti-cd19 which is tafacitumab that in combination with lenalidomide showed improved response rate in relapsed refractory lymphoma patients in the phase 2l mine trial we also have polatuzumab with otin which is an anti-cd79 b antibody drug conjugate which essentially what it does is that it uh, goes to the target CD79, which is essentially seen in all B-cell lymphoma patients. And once it attaches to the B-cell, then uh, it's internalized and the active moiety is released, which stops the cell proliferation and hence kills the cancer cells. Uh, in follicular lymphoma, which is one of the slow-growing B-cell lymphomas or the indolent lymphomas, we've seen start which is an EZH2 inhibitor that shows in combination with other drugs has shown improved response rate, improved survival. So EZH2 mutation is seen in about 10 to 40% of follicular lymphoma patients, and this drug has shown response rates higher in the mutated versus the wild type. So that has now to so be using this drug in second-line agents, uh, in second-line and for the treatments in follicular lymphoma. 
Switching gears to uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma and T-cell lymphomas, Brintuximab Vidotin, which is an anti-CD30 antibody drug conjugate, has shown to have remarkable uh, improved survival and response rates in T-cell lymphomas and Hodgkin's lymphoma. T-cell lymphoma, we initially used to have only CHOP or CHOAP as our chemotherapy backbone, but now in almost all CD30 positive lymphoma, T-cell lymphoma patients, we are using Brintuximab Vidotin with improved survival. Hodgkin's lymphoma has also seen a change in their first-line treatment with the addition of Brintuximab Vidotin. We were using ABVD for a long time in the United States at least, and an echelon trial with Brintuximab Vidotin in combination with ABD chemotherapy showed improved survival, overall survival. So now this is one of the first-line agents that we're using in Hodgkin's lymphoma patients. And I'd like to take a moment to discuss BTK inhibitors as well. I know it was discussed previously. Uh, it's used not only in CLL, but you've seen uh, it being used in primary CNS lymphoma, which is a difficult lymphoma to treat. It's also used in one of the rare Waldenstrom's macroglobinemia lymphoma as well. And I know people are going to discuss CAR-Ts and bispecific in detail and other causes. So CAR-T is basically, we take patients' own T-cells, we modify them, and then get them back to the patient as an IV infusion to fight against the cancer cells. Same as bispecific, which engages T-cells to fight against the cancer cells. These are the other newer agents that have changed the outcomes in lymphoma patients. And I'm sure it will be discussed in detail by the myeloma speaker as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. A wonderful presentation and um, excellent information about lymphoma. Thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Kamal Abu Hussein. And Dr. Hussein is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School, Rowan University, Adjunct Assistant Professor of MD Anderson Cancer Center, Department of Breast Medical Oncology. And Dr. Hussein will be addressing Precision Medicine's role in predicting response to treatment, the role of precision medicine in, in deciding treatment for breast cancer, update on clinical trials, uh, including basket, basket trials for cancer. My great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hussein. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Um, at the beginning of this call, uh, me and my colleagues, we were discussing how breast cancer was probably the first type of cancer that applied the concept of precision medicine to practice. Uh, it has a diagnostic companion, subdividing it as a disease into three main categories. And the meaning of that is that pathologists start reflex testing for certain receptors or markers in the cancer cells once breast cancer is seen on a biopsy. This is very helpful because it helps us really understand what therapies it is likely to respond to and also helps us predict the behavior and be able to prognosticate for our patients. So the different uh, types of breast cancer, normally the most common type is the hormone receptor positive breast cancer. Uh, and those are the cancers that typically test positive for the female hormones, estrogen and or pro progesterone. And um, being the most common subtype, um, 
the most uh, reasonable treatment that every patient with this disease will get offered is hormonal or endocrine-based therapies. And those are drugs like tamoxifen and other group of uh, drugs called the aromatase inhibitors. Uh, a third marker that we test for uh, is whether the cancer cells are producing too much of a protein called the HER2 protein. And someone with HER2-positive breast cancer is likely to respond to the drugs that target that protein. The, uh, the mission of targeting the HER2 receptor could be accomplished by a lot of medications like trastuzumab, also known as Herceptin. Another drug is pertuzumab or Progetta, among many other drugs. And the third or the remaining subset of breast cancer is a triple negative breast cancer. This means it is negative for the three markers, estrogen, progesterone, and the HER2 marker. And it's a subtype that is least common, and typically um, chemotherapy is thought of as the only available um, treatment option for those patients. Uh, however, there are a lot of advances for treatment of triple negative breast cancer, including the use of a, a class of drugs called BUB inhibitors, the immune checkpoint blockers, and antibody drug conjugates, among others. Of course, this schema is oversimplified, and we also understand that um, not all breast cancers that express the same receptor status would act and behave alike. And there's a lot of research work that's uh, currently being done to subclassify breast cancer in general into different molecular subtypes. Uh, so hopefully that'll help us um, uh, be on the right path to understanding uh, more about how can we manage that and improve our precision medicine for this disease. So usually when we try to determine the uh, potential of a certain treatment or intervention uh, that is likely to achieve a certain outcome in patients with cancer, we rely on something called a randomized clinical trial. However, in the clinical practice settings, personalized or precision medicine tailored to the individual patient's characteristics has questioned the value of the average treatment that could be offered to everybody based on those trials uh, and is looking more to target that therapy based on the individual characteristics of what that tumor in this very patient um, harbors. So in this regard, some of the shortcomings in conventional medicine, uh, which personalized medicine seeks to address, including the differences in treatment responses and the incidence of the adverse reactions based on the individual variation. Uh, in personalized medicine, the focus is on identifying which interventions will be effective for patients based on their genetic or environmental or lifestyle factors. And um, they carry out heterogeneous treatment effects um, that, that could affect the analysis, and the researchers can stratify individuals into uh, subpopulations that differ in their uh, likelihood of being susceptible to a certain treatment. Uh, the goal of precision medicine for breast cancer really is to tailor the treatment to the particular genetic makeup. Sometimes we refer to that as germline mutations or the genetic changes in the cancer cells, and that is referred to as somatic mutations. Uh, and in case of somebody who has advanced cancer or metastatic cancer, so if there is evidence of treatment progression or sometimes at the very beginning of diagnosis of metastatic um, cancer, 
the treating physician might recommend proceeding with a test called uh, tumor sequencing or NGS panel, standing for next generation sequencing. And what that is trying to look for are changes or some alterations in the cancer cells so that we can clarify if there is any targeted mutation that could benefit from a certain medication. Also, if the patient, even with uh, early stage breast cancer, has a suggestive family history or they develop cancer at a relatively early age, then genetic testing is normally offered. And uh, basically, that one is looking for the incidence of inherited genes or genetic mutations in the normal cells of the body, which increases risk for developing breast cancers, among others. A famous example for those genes are the BRCA mutations. And so women who have those genes have an increased risk of developing breast cancer compared to the general population, and the same test can also be used to determine if we would respond uh, to a specific drug or a treatment for this metastatic breast cancer, like the group of oral agents called the PARP inhibitors. Um, so PARP inhibitors, those are uh, the PARP uh, itself is an enzyme involved in the base excision repair after any DNA damage happens. And several clinical trials have been conducted to evaluate the benefits benefit, uh, of using such medications, both in the early stage setting and in the metastatic setting. So drugs like Olaparib or Lemparza or another medication is called Telazoparib are quite effective in breast cancer if the patient has that mutation. Um, there is a certain mutation called the SIG3CA, which is present in about 40% of patients who have metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer. And this allows them to benefit from a drug called Alcalysis, also known as SIGRAY, which is normally coupled to another hormonal therapy. Um, a variety of multi-gene assays are in clinical use or under investigation, and those really are very helpful in making decisions in clinic. I'll give you a couple examples of those. Um, the one that is most uh, commonly used is called the Oncotype DX, and that is a 21-gene assay that categorizes patients into groups of low, intermediate, or high risk of distant recurrence. And uh, this resulted in the development of this predictive um, scoring system called the Oncotype DXRS, or the recurrence score. Uh, this gene is commonly used in clinical practice to guide recommendations regarding the potential efficacy of systemic chemotherapy, in addition to the hormonal therapy for patients with early stage breast cancer that is hormone receptor positive. Another very similar test is a 70-gene assay called the print, and uh, this looks at the growth of the tumor, some signals uh, that uh, regulate replication and the ability of the cancer to metastasize and spread, and it's really very helpful also in clarifying which patients might develop, uh, might uh, have a benefit from chemotherapy treatment or not. A third test that we use commonly also is called BCI, or Breast Cancer Index, and it's another test that helps us understand the odds of late disease recurrence. And by late, I mean from year five to year 10. And this could be very helpful in making a decision about the optimal duration of endocrine or hormonal therapy in our patients. Um, another development for oncology clinical trials is known as basket studies. 
And uh, this includes patients with a certain genetic mutation in, um, in common. So basically, they carry a certain alteration or mutation, uh, regardless of the site or the origin of the cancer in the body. It doesn't really matter where it came from. Uh, the BASCA trials um, and the umbrella trials were created to help researchers study how tumors respond to targeted therapies. And the BASCA trials, also known as the bucket trials, enroll patients whose tumors have a specific genetic mutation, regardless of the cancer origin. An example is a drug called larotrectinib, which is um, a drug that was approved by the FDA as an option for any tumor with a certain gene fusion in the neurotrophic tyrosine receptor kinase, also known as NTRAC gene uh, fusion. Uh, this is based on the results of a basket study, regardless of the origin of the site of the cancer. Uh, thank you for listening, and I will stop here, and I will turn this over to Dr. Mezzo. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hussein. That was a wonderful presentation, and um, your discussion of basket trials is most interesting and a new concept. I'm sure there'll be questions about that during the Q&A. So thank you, thank you so much, Dr. Hussein. Um, and um, our next, our next speaker is Dr. Rona Yeager, and Dr. Yeager is the medical oncologist, gastrointestinal oncology service associate attending physician, Department of Medicine Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Yeager will be addressing, um, talking. Um, with your healthcare team about precision medicine and its benefits and the role of precision medicine in deciding treatment for colorectal cancer. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Yeager. Hi, thank you, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to join as well. Uh, first, for the question about talking with your healthcare team. As you heard, different cancers have different potential mass therapies. Testing in each cancer type is targeted to identify molecular changes that have mass therapies for that cancer type. To be sure you are aware of the potential for precision approaches in your treatment plan, please speak with your doctor regarding whether there are mass therapies and when they would be considered. And then I want to focus on the question of colorectal cancer. So previously treatments for colorectal cancer were directed towards tumor cells that are dividing more than our normal cells. So they weren't personalized based on tumor biology. The classic drug is 5-fluorouracil, or 5-FU, which is an example of such a treatment. And these drugs remain important and make up the core of many of our treatment plans. However, now we're starting to have match therapies for some colorectal cancers, so bringing in this precision medicine. These mass therapies fall into two types. The first type is for tumors that are what's called microsatellite instability high or deficient mismatch repair, where patients are particularly sensitive to immunotherapy, and this is being considered in the choice of treatment. So who are these people, and what does it mean to have a microsatellite instability high or deficient mismatch repair tumors? So tumors develop when um, our, our cells get um, mutations, changes in the genes that allow the cells to grow um, uncontrollably. And the mismatch repair system is a proofreading system that proofreads when the DNA is copied, so when the cell divides it needs to make two copies of its DNA. And when there are stretches where the same letter repeats, um, it is easier to make a mistake when copying. So the job of these genes is basically to encode a protein that will then proofread and make sure that this is copied correctly. So patients can have alterations affecting these 
genes, and that puts them at risk for colorectal cancer. This is um, commonly inherited um, as an inherited cancer uh, syndrome called Lynch syndrome, which is associated with colorectal and endometrial cancer in particular. But it can also happen by chance where these uh, genes are silenced. And this is more common as we get older, particularly in women um, who can develop polyps that can become cancerous um, that have silenced these genes. But the implication here is that while they have a colorectal cancer that may initially look similar to other tumors, these cancers have many more alterations, so are more easily visible to our immune system. So it, these uh, tumors are more likely to respond to immunotherapy, so they have a potential match therapy based on the biology where these tumors have developed with many alterations. The other type of mass therapy that's important in the treatment of colorectal cancer is a mass targeted therapy, where um, the treatment is matched for the specific alteration, the specific change within the tumor. This is often described as like a lock and key, where you could think that the tumor has a lock, um, it has a change that has allowed it to grow or survive, and the drug is like a key that fits in that lock, and so there is a, a match, there is some precision in that uh, treatment. A specific example of this would be a colorectal tumor that has a mutation in a gene called BRAF that would activate and turn on the BRAF gene, and there are drugs now that are targeted um, towards BRAF, and so patients could be treated with a targeted therapy based on this alteration. While at this time, most of our patients with colorectal cancer do not have such precision medicine approaches available, there are ongoing studies that are looking at new targets with new selective drugs, so such as new drugs like um, what um, are called KRAS, allele-specific inhibitors. So KRAS mutations are very common and have not had mass therapies, and now Little by little, the first group, the KRAS patients who have a tumor that have a KRAS G12C mutation, are starting to um, be treated in clinical trials with matched therapies, and there's a hope that the other KRAS mutations will follow soon. And also, these um, matched the, these precision approaches are being moved earlier. This is specifically seen in patients who have these mismatch repair deficient or microsatellite instability high tumors where we can see dramatic effect of these drugs and they're being tested in patients where the tumor hasn't even spread and is still localized. And the, there was a study recently from MSK that was um, got a lot of press of doing this where the tumor responded and the patients actually were able to avoid surgery. So I would ask your doctor if your tumor has any alterations with mass therapies and how such treatment can fit in in the treatment plan. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Yeager. That was outstanding and just a wonderful presentation. And I know there will be questions to you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is um, Allison, Dr. Allison Krishnan Vokan. And Dr. Vokan is Medical Director, Molecular Diagnostics, Laboratory, Nebraska Medicine, Medical Director, Warren G. Sanger, Human Genetics Laboratory, Nebraska Medicine, um, Fellowship Director, ACGME, Molecular Genetic Pathology Fellowship Program, Professor, Department of Pathology and Microbiology, University of Nebraska Medical Center. And Dr. Cushman Vogan will be addressing the role of the pathologist and asking your healthcare team and pathologist to help you understand open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Cushman Vogan. 
Uh, thank you for the introduction. Um, and I also want to thank all of the other uh, colleagues and, and speakers for the kind words about pathologists. Um, I would agree that the teamwork between oncologists and pathologists is extremely important um, so that patients, um, cancer patients can get the best care possible. So I'll speak briefly about the role of pathology. I, I know it's been um, discussed previously. Um, pathologists can either be anatomic or clinical pathologists or both. The anatomic or surgical pathologists are the pathologists who, after the tissue that's taken out of the body is processed, review that uh, tissue or the, uh, if it's going to be a tumor, a tumor under the microscope to render a diagnosis for the oncologist. Uh, and, and they also do autopsies and such. And then you have uh, clinical pathologists who oversee all the laboratories within the hospital or within the clinic. I am what is called a molecular pathologist. I trained in a fellowship that specializes in um, overseeing the laboratories that are clinical laboratories that do uh, all the testing that has been discussed by all of the callers today, assessing for various biomarkers using either next generation sequencing of, of DNA or RNA, or um, potentially looking for, for say, HER2 amplification using something called um, FISH analysis. So I oversee the labs in our hospital that do these various um, biomarker testing. Our lab does a lot of next generation sequencing, um, which is the type of technology uh, many of you may have seen or heard of reports from either laboratories or companies that look at lots of different genes, as we've discussed, for mutations or changes that could be targeted by therapies or potentially help diagnose um, a certain kind of leukemia, for instance. And so um, the lab that I oversee performs many of these different tests. One thing I'll say about these tests is that um, while they are becoming much more mainstream and um, much easier to perform, they are still very highly technological tests. Um, they have to, we have to have good tissue. So what my lab does is it takes the tissue that's been reviewed by a surgical pathologist we extract, which means we take out the, the DNA or the RNA from the tissue or the tumor cells, and um, we process that, and then we perform a sequencing analysis, and that takes um, a lot of what are called reagents and chemicals to, to process that, and then we put it on these large sequencers. And after all of that happens, these sequencers are very automated. It produces data that gets processed by a computer software um, program which can be very complicated. Um, we have people in the lab called bioinformaticists that help us with this. And then the final step of that is um, the pathologist, such as myself, will review that data, interpret it, and provide or create a report that will help the oncologist um, to know what the mutation means, what drugs might be targeted um, to that mutation, um, what clinical trials might be available based on the genomic findings or the mutations we find in the DNA or the RNA. And then we produce a report that gets what we call signed out into the medical record, um, into the electronic healthcare system. And um, and maybe um, some of the callers have noticed um, more recently. You know, if you if you have joined what are called portals within your hospital or your clinical care setting, um, oftentimes you receive your results um, as soon as they get released by the laboratory or by the pathologist. And so I think that's um, what uh, we're talking about with open notes, um, where what happened um, was a, an act was signed into law by President Obama in 2016 called the 20th, 21st Century Cures Act. 
And that act was extremely pro-patient. Um, the goal of this act was to assist the FDA um, to help accelerate medical product development and innovations for patient care, um, incorporate more patient perspectives in the development of drugs and various innovations, um, and to modernize clinical trials, among a lot of other um, goals. And one of the goals of this act, this 21st Century Cures Act, was to make um, electronic healthcare information, such as the testing that pathologists sign out and laboratory testing and, and clinical notes and so forth, um, much more readily accessible for patients right away, where um, it would be the expected norm for healthcare information to be available right away to the patient. And so over the last few years, hospitals and clinical care settings, including you know our hospital, for instance, um, have, have worked really hard to find ways to make sure that um, appropriate information is getting to the patients immediately based on this, um, this law. Um, it was actually, initially we were supposed to be up and running and providing this by October of 2020, but of course that fell dur during the pandemic. So it was pushed back till April 2021. And since then, many of you probably have received laboratory results and so forth um, as, as soon as they're released. Now I have to say when, when this came about, there was a lot of concern, um, at least at our hospital and I know other places, from mainly pathologists and oncologists in that results, you know, a biopsy result, uh, a tumor profile result, um, might get released to a patient that could be somewhat distressing um, before they had a chance to actually really um, interact with their oncologist about that result or hear that result. Um, and, and so there was a lot of concern, and, and there still is some concern with that, but I think there are a lot of pros to this also, and I'd be interested to see what some of the oncologists think, um, because it allows patients to prepare for their visit with their oncologist to kind of research a little bit, learn about it, kind of take it all in before um, they go and meet with their oncologist. So there, th that was kind of the idea. Um, you know, in, in my setting and in, in developing these reports, they, they can be very complicated reports. There's a lot of information in them. And so one thing that has been discussed a lot more in our in my community is how or if we should be changing these reports to make them more, you know, easily accessible for patients and so forth. I personally will not, you know, I'll sign out my report as if it's going to the oncologist. Um, I, I feel like all my information needs to be in there at a, at a, um, a level for the oncologist to be able to have all the information they need. Um, but but it really has kind of changed the way we think about you know releasing results um, and how you know what the patient seeing at first how you know what that what that might do or what, how that might be received by the patient. Um, my husband's a hospitalist, so he does more general medicine, and he has been very pro you know release of results as soon as possible because he feels like his patients have a lot more education prior to the clinic visit, can have their questions prepared and so forth. So there, there are a lot of positives to this, this new law um, requiring this. Um, and one more just quick you know, item we have to think about too is this also can include more raw genetic data that we might produce from like say our genetic sequencers. And so the question is how do we handle those requests also when it might be a different place trying to analyze that data um, that might do it differently than say we do. Um, you know, there's lots of questions surrounding the release of genetic data also. Um, but those are just some of the issues that have come forth, and, and that's if you hear about open notes, that's kind of what's now, um, what's, what's happening, and that's why this is happening. So with that, I'll turn it back over, um, and um, I'm happy to take any questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Cushman Falcon. Excellent presentation and lots of really invaluable information for participants. Um, 
Um, I'm Carolyn Meston. I just want to say a few words about the services that Cancer Care provides. Um, we um, have um, a variety. We're a national nonprofit organization, and we provide um, uh, services through our Hope Line. Um, people often call us at 800-813-4673 and speak with one of our um, oncology social workers. Um, we have about 45 of them. Um, and they, or they can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, and um, they also can listen to, of course, these programs. We do about 80 of them per year. And with that being said, um, I would like now to move on to questions. I'm going to ask uh, Dennis to explain to our participants how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Uh, Dennis? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And so we have a number of questions here. I'm going to start with um, a question um, uh, for Dr. Krishman uh, uh, Um What is being done to reduce the weight for results on the tissue analysis, which um, provides patients and caregivers with so much uh, stress? Uh, yes, this is a good good question. Um, it, you know, like I said, the technology, well, first off, there are many different biomarkers. Um, and initially, when we were starting, there were lots of different technologies and maybe even laboratories within a hospital that had to perform uh, testing. For instance, one lab might have to perform what's called fish testing for ALK-ROS. One lab might have to do something called immunohistochemistry for, say, PDL1, and this is with regard to lung cancer. Another lab might have to do a next generation sequencing assay for you know, EGFR, KRAS, so forth. Uh, as, as the technology has improved, um, we are able to do more of that testing in, an, in somewhat of an all in one assay. Um, it's not perfect yet, which can um, allow for results to be released more efficiently, um, I think, to the oncologist and to the patient. And it can also use less tissue. Sometimes we get very small biopsies, so it's, it's better for tissue provenance. Um, the, the problem is, you know, many of these technologies, the, everyone thinks the more genes, the better. If we have, you know, 500, 700 genes, and, and that's true, you know, the more information we think, the better. Um, the problem is the larger panels require more sequencing power and potentially more tissue and can take longer to analyze. Um, and so in our lab, we um, run a, a smaller panel that you can take, and it can take, you know, two days total to get results from when we get the specimen, um, if we get enough specimens to run now, so which means we could have results in three to, three to four days. The more information you get, the more analysis it takes as well. Um, so, you know, sometimes I think when we're looking at, you know, kind of first-line drugs, like they were talking about with lung cancer, say, you know, ALK, ROC, EGFR, KRAS, maybe initially doing a smaller panel that could be quicker, give more information to get that patient on the immunotherapy, depending on the results may be the better way to go at first, and then down the road do larger panels, say, that have a lot more information that needs to be processed um, for, say, enrollment in the clinical trial. And so it depends on the lab. It depends on, you know, what the institution wants to do. Um, but I think maybe thinking about some of these more rapid assays initially might be a better way to get more quickly, um, quick results for FDA-approved therapies at least. Excellent. Thank you. And a um, question for Dr. Morrow. What is the role of precision medicine in cancer prevention, not just cancer treatment? 
That's a great question. Um, so some of the, oh, actually across the board, the speakers, we've all been speaking of something called next generation sequencing, which really just means we've gotten a lot smarter about sequencing and, and through the decades and next generation is sort of the deeper, better, more detailed, able to see genes that for variations in the genome at small levels. I guess what I'm getting at, I think um, we've actually discovered that we can find the, um, the precursors of blood cancers or potentially the precursors of blood cancers and follow patients. It's called something called clonal hematopoiesis. This is an example of how it can be used preventatively. Um, and you know, we're actually starting trials where if someone has um, a mutation at, that is targetable, even if they don't necessarily have much change in their blood count, could you essentially block that target and maybe um, um, well, what could be a, a, an emerging or very small population of abnormal cells and before cancer is actually manifest, a blood cancer. Um, another area might, that's worth mentioning is um, was alluded to by a few of the speakers and that some cancer syndromes that are linked to genetic abnormalities are inherited. And so many people have benefited from the, the identification of a family member or loved one with a cancer and then having them self-tested and they can have either enhanced screening and um, avoid cancer. Sometimes they, requ they, re they require intervention. Some people have had preventative surgery, for example, to, um, to limit uh, the risk of cancer. So there are a lot of different ways we can use the tools we've talked about to either treat early, treat before cancer is really manifest, potentially, although that definitely requires more exploration, but moreover, um, <clears throat> screen people more um, effectively and potentially intervene before cancer, um, it, which may be a, a, unfortunately more of a likelihood or a certainty in certain patients, um, has a chance. Excellent. Thank you so much. And for Dr. Um, Hussein, um, what is the difference between precision medicine and personalized medicine? What about pharm pharmacogenomics? <laughs> Hello. Uh, so the pharmacogenomics is really a, um, a direction of research that studies how a person's uh, gene affects how he or she would respond to a certain medication. Um, as some of my colleagues alluded to uh, earlier, I think there's a lot of overlap in all of this terminology. Um, I like to understand the, the general concept, which is why are we talking about this in the first place? And I think um, personalized medicine or precision medicine has many things underneath that big umbrella of, of a concept, which is you're trying to tailor this treatment to suit this very patient, not just every patient with a general type of cancer like breast cancer. So I think they're all multiple smaller concepts under the big, um, the big uh, title of personalized medicine. Thank you. And um, a question for Dr. Yeager. Is precision medicine in a pill form or infusion? Uh, sorry, I, I got cut off. Is, oh. is it in a pill form or? Is, is, a, is precision medicine in a pill form or infusion? Uh, it, it can be in both. Um, many of the targeted therapies that are being developed now are uh, in a pill form, but um, they're not necessarily so. And the immunotherapy that I mentioned for patients who have um, this mismatch repair 
defects are infusional. So it can, it can be in both. It's not characterized by how it's given, by rather the, the selectivity of uh, the drug, that it's uh, selective either for an alteration or some molecular characteristic of the tumor. And another question for you, Dr. Yeager. I heard about the Joint Center for Cancer Precision Medicine in Boston. Could you say something about that? A question for one of our participants. I'm sorry, I don't know um, oh, okay. about the center. <laughs> okay. Anybody know about that? <laughs> hear about that? Okay. Um, okay. Um, and uh, so, and also another question. Um, this will be the last one. Um, what, if any, are the downsides to a precision medicine approach versus current standard of care, um, Doctor? Um, Jaeger, do you want to address that one as well? Uh, sure. Um, I can give one thought that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. So the uh, precision medicine approach is meant to be very selective, um, going after some particular characteristic of the tumor. But the, the tumor is uh, kind of a nice fight for survival of fittest, fight for your life to survive through the pressure of that drug. Um, and so sometimes the tumor can outsmart the drug. And so in many of our solid tumors in particular, we see that over time the patient no longer responds to the targeted drug. And the more precise the drug is, the more ways they are for the tumor to develop you know, changes that would allow it to survive the drug. So while the kind of precise approach is great, um, we want it to be durable. Um, we heard about some examples um, with CML where uh, the precision medicine was transformative, and um, in some of our solid tumors, we haven't had the same duration of response just because by the time we give it the bulk of the tumor, there's so many cells and the tumor can outsmart it in many ways. So I think one thing for the future is to figure out how to give these drugs in such a way that we can hopefully um, hit the cancer hard enough to actually des destroy it and not um, have some persistence of the cancer that can find a way to grow out. Excellent. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. This has been an amazing call today, and um, I realize that we have many more questions in queue than we can possibly take today. So I actually want to thank our speakers, and I want to thank our participants for asking such really terrific questions today, really very thoughtful questions. And I do just want to wrap this up by saying a few things about, um, you know, just about uh, um, this, um, about many of your questions. First of all, for those of you who asked a question, those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who um, are thinking of a question to ask, please, all of you, go back to your treating healthcare teams and ask them your questions because you've learned things today, and that means you'll want to take your questions back to your treating healthcare team because they know you the best and they can obviously help you specifically about your particular type of cancer and your specific needs. Also, we would not want anyone to leave the call today um, feeling um, alone. We want you to know that you're now part of the community of support, um, and that support community includes um, so many different um, healthcare professionals, your healthcare team, um, your, um, your oncologist, your hematologist oncologist, your um, your um, your pathologist, um, that whole team of people that are there to help you. So that although it is often tempting to feel that you're alone, please do not feel alone. Know that you're part of the community support and you can always call Cancer Care for help as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This includes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.